because there are two distinct communities, first of all. One is the autism community, which was created, and this is how I define it in my work and on my site. The autism community is created by parents, non-autistic parents, majority are non-autistic parents, loved ones, and professionals in this group. And there are a few autistics, and there are a few folks who are raised in this and can't see any other way, you know. And, and then you have the autistic community, which is almost 100% all autistic people. We have a few incredible allies, you know, who have done amazing work side by side with this. And, and yep. it's surreal, but we don't have anywhere near uh, the support from non-autistics than these autism organizations that were parent-founded and the science organizations that were parent-founded do, yeah. and we don't have the billions of dollars, and we don't have the tie-ins to the government here. We aren't integrated with the National Institutes of Health and Mental Health and the CDC, where Autism Speaks is. Aspie's podcast. Written, recorded, and produced by Paul Wadey. Hello there. Welcome to yet another podcast. Today we'll be listening to Eve Ryland, all the way over there in the United States of America. Eve. It describes herself as an autistic activist, artist, writer, and mother. She is the founder of internationalbadassactivist.org and a co-founder of the Autistic Cooperative. He started writing for advocacy in 2005 and launched the first campaign for autism in 2008. After becoming disabled in 2010 to functional neurological disorder and PTSD, Eve had to heal and learn how to live again. She re-entered activism in 2014 to fight the stigma against living with a severe mental illness and to fight for human and civil rights for divergent people. Eve's goals are to help make a better future for all autistics born today, amplify divergent voices and document autistic people's lives, autistic culture and history in writing and documentaries. And she says her greatest accomplishment is raising her autistic children to be self-advocates and hearing them raise their voice and be heard in this fight for human and civil rights. And here she is. If you could tell us, tell me, tell us, a few things about how it all started, really, that you became a great activist. One sec. Here in California, we... <laughs> I love that so much. Get this bong out, you know, here in California, vumph, you know. <laughs> Good morning, wake, wake. Medicinal purposes only. Y you know what? Yeah, that's how <laughs> it started. Now, it's just since 2010 I've had to because I cannot take the pain meds like Norco's and things. Yeah. So, and, uh, and actually after 10 years of pain management, that's much better. A lot of people are having problems because they got hooked on these bad meds, you know. Yeah. The doctor put them on, and so fortunately, I was bad to begin with, so I'm better off now. Yeah. <laughs> really glad to hear that. You know, I was looking at my stuff when I started. Um, yeah. In the autistic stuff, the autism stuff. Let's see, it yeah. started way back 
in the uh, 90s, I had this child, you see. He was different, but he was just like me. Yeah. And he was a lot like his dad, too. His dad and I are both, uh, you know, different than your average bear, and I'm autistic. Yeah. And I found that out at the same time I found out about him, but it made no sense. This is back in 2004 or five. I can't yeah. remember. Because at that time, we had a doctor who was not affiliated with all the stuff that we know now. Mm. Um, and he was telling me um, about autism and how it affected us. And he told me my son is just like his parents and started describing it. And it's like, well, that makes sense, but I'm not afraid of it. You know, there was no fear. We'd never spoke about anything like that. It's just my son is like me. He needs more support in school. And um, let's get him out alive. That's Michael. Not even to graduate. Let's just get him out alive. Get him out alive. Another and thing. I thought I'd have more of a handle on it since I did this by myself growing up. I felt like I could, I was there for him. I could make his experience so much better than mine was because I understood what he was going through. Yeah. You know, I could feel it. I could sense it. He didn't have to tell me things. And that's one of the things in looking back, I realized I just understood things intuitively for him. Uh, yes. And that's how I was advocating for him long before that word came into our existence. Yeah. Um, afterwards, I didn't identify as autistic yet because I was a mom trying to keep her kid alive in the seventh grade. He was suicidal as fuck. And yep. I was desperate to get him help in school. How so, was he in the seventh grade? Yeah. Oh, he was suicidal from the second grade up. He had suicide okay. ideation and depression. It was awful. It was awful for him. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible, yeah. And he was different, and yeah, so he struggled greatly, and I thought I could help him more. Yeah. And I realized I didn't have that capability of power. No matter how big of a bat I had, I cannot make school different for him. Yeah. And we ended up moving. I was, I've been working in the newspaper industry from 95 or 96 online. Yeah. Um, and so I transferred back to the newspaper here in Fresno because my family was here and his grandma was here. And I knew and his dad knew he needed more support than just the two of us could give him. We needed our village back, you know. So that's what we did. But um, I started writing. I started blogging in 2005. Yeah. And um, I started my first autism campaign. Mind you, I did not understand all the worlds yet. I did not understand the politics. I didn't understand the bullshit, you know? Best um, Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, okay. And so I started getting an education. I ran my first autism awareness campaign in 2008 and got over 200 bloggers working together and pushing out that information for April. Um, and it got the attention of some folks. Um and it became a permanent home. This feed that I created back then became a permanent home on a site called blognetnews.com, which is a big site here at the time for opinions, opinion writers, yeah. newspapers, and things like that. So that went on even after I got uh, disabled until it shut down. That The person who headed that up now works, I think, I think they're at USA Today. Anyhow, um, we yeah. all have different lives than back then, but... Um, and so then after that, I was learning about, uh, let's see, oh, I got pregnant. Surprise. It was a surprise. I had my oldest when I was 20. 
and then was not able to have children again. And uh, my husband and I at the time adopted a child who is ah, autistic. Brilliant. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> going differently with him at two, and they're like, "Are you worried?" Nah. You guys just don't understand him. I got this. We know what this is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just empathy, yeah. Yeah, and he's a senior in high school now, this one, and he's graduating. So yeah. it's just mind-boggling to me what they tell you when they're young and don't listen. But um, Developers, aren't we? It's just a matter of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was pregnant during 08, 09, when we had the big green the vaccines rallies and stuff like that with Jimmy McCarthy. And I worked at a children's hospital for the last year of my career before becoming disabled and seen firsthand absolute horror of pertussis and things that had made a huge comeback in California. These newborn babies, one set was a set of twins, I remember. And one twin didn't get it, the other twin did. And so the family was having to live in an RV outside the children's hospital parking lot to take yep. care of the one child who was in critical condition, who was a twin, and the twin was out there, and they couldn't cross him over. This is because people were not getting the vaccinations, and these babies were dying from it and suffering, and they had a CDC out there, and just such a mess. And so I knew firsthand um, growing up in the 70s, too, because we heard about polio. We heard about all these things, and that's why we had our vaccine, so we would live to see adulthood. It was a huge blessing of our era you know we were taught this is a good thing and yeah. it was because all my siblings lived through childhood as well as i did yeah, um, when you have people flying around the world you live in cities like ours um vaccines kind of stop everyone literally because we have stuff coming in from uh, heathrow airport in the piccadilly line i happen to know is really nasty african viruses you can get because they've been oh, found down so you guys have to be a lot more aware with well, that's the thing. We're all vaccinated, uh, and nobody's putting, uh, touching things in the London Underground. Cuts on the hands. Everyone's been all right. But if you did that, you'd soon find out why we need vaccines. See, everyone's been living in a dream. This is because they had the childhood vaccines, and the the ecosystem become relatively harmless. And I can assure you that all the time in London, there's viruses coming through from all over the world, and people aren't catching them because they used to be protected before the anti-vaccination people. <laughs> Right? Oh. Can you believe how they leveled up with COVID? It blows my mind. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. So Jenny McCarthy was doing this green the vaccines thing, and I was like, okay, yeah. if you can make them less toxic, okay. It just there was, I didn't know how vaccines work. I didn't know what the problem was, and here are these people speaking out like they have some authority on the subject, bringing exactly. in other people who sound like and seem like. They have authority on the subject. Got it. That's exactly the point. Yeah, like they actually knew. And they made it sound real. And so I was confused. It's like, well, I'm going to make sure my baby gets all their shots. And maybe while they're at it, they can help green the vaccines. But um, autism is not something I want my children to die for. Because if she's autistic, she's born autistic, you know. Oh. My, I, I just don't. And I thought, well, maybe there's an autism that's different. Because at the time, they talked about hundreds. There were all these autisms, these mysterious autisms yeah. everywhere, all <laughs> over the place. And I swear, 
I told my son, I said, I don't know what kind of autisms are running out there for everyone else, but you and I have the kind that doesn't kill you. It's not a disease. <laughs> we won't die from this. This is not yeah. like cancer. But you see how confusing it is. You know, it's like, I don't know what kind of autism their kids got. Yeah. But you and I are genetic. Did they happen to point we out? We are just born this way, you know. Same characteristics. Like exactly the same list of characteristics, but they're all different. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and so the parents then were like, oh, did your son get the autism from the vaccines? Like, nope, he was born this way, and the vaccines didn't change him at all. Now, looking back, he did have a regressive period, but this regression that these parents talk about, every time you hear them talk about, oh, the great regression, they lost their language, they lost this, they went into, and they lost their child behind this wall. Every single one of them I have read makes me kind of giggle because... At the same time, my son stopped speaking and doing things. He didn't speak a lot. Yeah. And he had different ways, but we moved. We moved our home. Right. And it shut him down for six months. He stopped talking and he stopped being potty. I mean, everything started over. He was a puppy for two more years. He didn't speak again until kindergarten or first grade. And he still doesn't speak a lot to people, but he's very capable. You know, he's still my, my more quiet one. Um, but I never worried about that because you know what he did? He could sign. I, I, I grew up in a, a deaf culture and a deaf community and a deaf family. Uh, so when I took him in about the, the speech issues and things that he was no longer speaking, he was no longer doing any of these things. The doctor said, well, don't worry if he does something, come back in six months and we'll check on it. I said, well, he's not speaking, but he's using ASL. Oh, well, those count as the words. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't think anything about it. We just used ASL, and uh, he understood what I was saying. He understood what people were saying, and um, he was then reading and writing and typing and using Photoshop before he would speak. <laughs> so I called him Henri. I was like, oh, my gosh, are you serious? You're typing, writing, printing, and doing Photoshop next to me in lab, and you haven't even said a word. What am I supposed to do with you, smartass? You know? And so I, he was like four years old, you know? And uh, and he would just get this little smirk. And so he and I have communicated through typing online through Messenger, mostly. That's where you, it's like, if you don't know my son online, if you aren't on Messenger, then you don't know my son. Right. Because he's not able to be himself with you out in these situations, you know. And so a lot of the adaptations and things, he and I just figured out. Yeah. So, but I still didn't see myself as autistic at that time i knew i had that diagnosis oh but you know what it was it's because i was a developer i was an online development all my friends had kids who were autistic too and so we were kind of talking oh i guess they got it from the parents and then came in the official diagnosis oh yeah it was me it's all my fault (laughs) (laughs) i'm the the one that did it (laughs) concept of blame and responsibility it's always pejorative the idea that there is something wrong even when you have somebody who can communicate but the ability of able to communicate more somebody who can do things but they've got to be able to do more so i'm getting all tongue-tied it's this whole sort of internal materialism that if all autistics were up to a certain standard of functionality there wouldn't be a problem if all autistics were mass savants who could pay their way there wouldn't be a problem but it's the lobby of dysfunctional to people everyone from people who are depressed to people who can't function in societies, people who will never, you know, live independent lives. It's this group that 
it's a different community. And this is what causes the relative sort of problems for us all. Why do you think that just you don't hear about different communities? Why is it all going to be lumped in together? I don't understand. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like the queer umbrella. The queer umbrella hosts many communities underneath that. Um, So, you know, um, and people sometimes think it's all the same community there, too, and it's not. Um, And so, like, what I'm finding is there are two distinct communities, first of all. One is the autism community, which was created, and this is how I define it in my work and on my site, the autism community is created by parents, non-autistic parents, majority are non-autistic parents, loved ones, and professionals in this group. And there are a few autistics, and there are a few folks who are raised in this and can't see any other way, you know. And and then you have the autistic community, which is almost 100% all autistic people. We have a few incredible allies, you know, who have done amazing work side by side with us and and it's surreal but we don't have anywhere near uh the support from non-autistics than these autism organizations that were parent founded and these science organizations that were parent founded do and we don't have the billions of dollars and we don't have the tie-ins to the government here we aren't integrated with the national institutes of health and mental health and the cdc where autism speaks is and yeah. so this issue that we have here with functioning labels, we have so many complications here. We can't even get some of the basics that over there in the UK you guys have done. You know, there seems to be more understanding. I've gone through your guys' work, um, like a homeless toolkit. And yeah, it's not all perfect, but at least there was autistic involvement. And it's yeah. a lot more to the things that we need than what I hear over here. People over here don't even know the basics. Um of our community are in that we even have a culture, you know, it's beyond them. Um, and that is how I came back into activism. Yeah. Was I went into the, uh, I became disabled in 2010. Yeah. I have severe PTSD and I have functional neurological disorder, which is tied into that somehow. And psychogenic non-epileptic seizures and the tics and the tremors. It presents like MS, Tourette's, Parkinson's, all that. But it's different. Um, And the EDS and stuff. But I was in a coma-like state for about two years, I'm told. I lost... Yeah. I mean, it was awful. I lost hair. I lost memory. I lost my health. I had to learn how to talk, walk, do everything all over again. So when I say I was kind of off the planet... For a few years, I was literally not in tune with the outside world. I was severely, severely disabled and 100% need of caregiving. Yeah. And I had lost my memory. I had right. waves of amnesia and things like that. So there were things I could remember and then big things I couldn't. But I couldn't track time. I can tell, like, what year I'm in now before... I didn't even know where the hell I was. It was just like I had to look for outside clues. But um, and then I became aware. I went from being one of the best at what I did in my career to being the crazy lady who looked homeless on a bus bench getting spit on. So I've accepted awards for being great and been at this pedestal. And then I've been on the bus bench spit on being called crazy. And I was. And I was not well. 
Um, and it was just some of the most unbelievable experiences, but I'm here now. And when I started standing back up again and started talking again, and I could write better than I could speak. Yeah. So you got that keyboard in front of me and all hell was breaking loose because they didn't know I could think and talk. And I was like, excuse me, doctor, I'm trying to ask you a question. Now, yeah. could you please answer me like I'm an adult and not a five-year-old? And his mouth is like, oh, <laughs> it's like, yes, yeah, I, I exist in here. <laughs> but um, I was having a PTSD flare-up. And when I was much more mobile at that time, I would walk. I'd walk it off. And the trigger time and the flare-ups and the flashbacks and stuff that, you know, people make fun of them. They're no fucking joke, you know? Yeah. And so as I'm walking, I see this delivery truck come by and it's this energy drink called 5150. Live the madness. Well, 5150 code here right. is the code in California for if you're gravely disabled, a threat to yourself or to others due to mental illness, you know? And I was like, that is not a choice. I'm out here living this. I have no fucking choice to live the madness. And I was pissed. It's like, how dare you bring stigma? I'm in my own neighborhood trying to work this out. And you're acting like this is a thing to be cool. Fuck you. So I flipped off the delivery driver. I was done. Fuck all you bitches. That's where I was at in my mind. Go fuck yourself on the horse you rode in on. Jeez. Thanks for commodifying a, a real thing. You know, and it's one of the worst experiences that people go through in life and you're acting like it's something fucking cool. Mm. And the kids in that age range have their first breaks and they do live the fucking madness. How are you helping them? You're telling them this is what it's supposed to be. So I started, I came home and I mean, I was just upset. I just learned how to share my story. I just learned how to say, hi, I'm crazy and that's okay. Uh, You know, I'm one of the 17... The one in 17 who live with a serious mental illness, I'm not one, and I still live. I'm still having good life, you know? Um, but, so I started that campaign. Well, this guy, he had a energy drink, he had a race team, he had boxing clubs, he had all this stuff named after that. And so I started a campaign to get him to change his name. Right. Well, I met up with him. It took a year or two, but when he didn't change his ways, I decided to take that campaign online, and I just started, well, I started being me, and um, got the attention, and one of the, the largest grocery outlet chains here in California yeah. is called Save Mart, and wrote them letters, wrote other letters, and they decided to take the drink off the shelf. Mm. It came with backlash. It came with death threats. It came with a lot. But what happened, I found out, they told me I was hurting autistic children. Oh, you're hurting those kids with autism. You're destroying their lives. I'm like, what in the hell are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, this guy had a campaign where autism awareness and he had his car, his racing car, 5150, lived the madness, done up in puzzle pieces. And he made donations to Autism Speaks. I got all this information from Autism Speaks. And there was a couple local groups that he was connected to, but they were like families for effective autism treatment, which I didn't understand at that time what that meant. (laughs) But now I do. And I was like, well, no wonder they all have a skewed view of what being autistic is. So I decided, well, I guess I better come out of this closet. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. And I had to think about it for a bit. It's like, no, you guys are so wrong. Tell me what else you think about autism. Are you serious? Yeah. This is what you think autism is. Well, first of all, just stop. 
this has got to be, I thought it was a Central Valley, California thing. I thought it was just here. So I yeah. looked more and I realized what the hell happened when I was insane and not on this planet. You all lost your freaking minds. <laughs> I was stunned. Uh-huh. I just couldn't believe it. So that's how I came back in. And I was like, okay, fine. Fuck you. I'm autistic. Oh, you're autistic now? No, I was born autistic. Go fuck yeah. yourself. We don't just come out and talk to you. Look at you bitches. You know, you're going to be mean. And yeah. you're going to say things, and you're going to call me the old wood, and you're going to say, um, we kill people. There's so much stigma out here. What the hell happened? You know? And so that's when I said, that's it. I'm coming out. I put aside the Real 5150 campaign oh. and said I, I found the Red Instead campaign, but I couldn't find autistic people. Yeah. And that was a struggle for me because as I was coming back around and coming back online, there was no more IRC. There was no more of the places I had belonged before. And all the people I spoke to were gone, which meant I was no longer involved in an autistic community. And it was right. hard. And I didn't understand how different I was until I was cognitively disabled and I'm not capable of masking. I'm not capable right. of not saying exactly what I think. <laughs> you know, um, be very hardly mm-hmm. <laughs> very feminine, my dear. Telling the truth about what you think, mm-hmm. exactly. Can I tell you? Right. Hang on, Eve. I came back in and started with the Red Instead campaign, yep. and then just I, I, and I've been in a state of stunned wow ever since because I cannot believe that this is what people think autism is it is like the Truman it's this movie called Truman's World it actually had Jim Carrey in it and he grows up his wife and then he finds out it's all fake that's the autism community the autistic community is outside that bubble we live out here in reality we live out here with homelessness as care incarceration as care we live here with stigma and abuse and just un godly quality of life because of these functioning labels i've got autistic kids with all different functioning labels and the one that they think should be a genius and in college and doing stuff is the one who can't leave the house it's the one that is paralyzed and he's trying so hard and he's almost 30 you know um he's the one that i got through high school alive and he's the one that's going to the work programs that are failing him because they're using aba you know I got my one of my other autistic kids. I was told to not have high expectations. I was told that the R word. I was told a lot of things. And that child of mine is graduating high school and going on to college. Yeah. And he was, I was told not to expect much. I was like, you're foolish. You're just full of it. You don't understand. Yeah. These kids just learn different. And yes, those, there were lots of years of children not speaking lots of years i've changed more diapers for probably 15 years straight but that's not the problem i never saw that as a problem i'm a parent can i these are my children something before you carry on in england we have the national autistic task force which is autistic adults talking to government directly So, so you guys have that there yeah and we also have the participatory autistic research collective which is headed by jamie milton we've lost dinah murray she sadly died only the other month, which is a bloody shame. We lost Dinah. Really loved Dinah. I used to go around and see her. And poor Dinah's gone. But she was a major sort of queen of our scene and very important. But in this country, it's different. You actually have uh, government listening to the autistic. National Autistic Society, I work for them. And autistics inform the organization. The organization tries to (laughs) 
listen so that's to, the homeless tool homelessness toolkit i found was part of nas that i've been showing here so thank you guys that's all autistics working on it i think yeah. in your country there's more autistics involved than anyone realizes they're on the closet and hiding but they're still there you know mm -hmm. Because the culture can't handle it, because as you know, it's all about maturity, competence, ability, strength, money. And so the result is it's all about looking big and clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whereas people who are relatively un, you know, unadvantaged, all well, the whole WASP thing, the whole hierarchy are not likely to get listened to. And there's all these parents with really disabled kids who just want to save them from autism or save them somehow before the parents die, so they invented this whole world. Right. And um, I'm looking at this world from my perspective and looking in autistic history. They created this world because yeah. they didn't want us autistics to have a voice here in the States. And you understand that because you were there at the beginning with oh. Peter Bell and with Alison Singer and the Wrights and everyone else. But they had this meeting in 2003 with Tom Insel, who was a part of the National Institutes of Mental Health. It's this human genomics project dinner celebration, you know. <laughs> um, and then after that, we saw everything being launched. But they coordinated with NIMH and CDC. They were involved from the beginning at legislation level, and they locked us out because they knew we did not believe their way to be the right way. They brought in anti-vaxxers. They brought in... Everyone on the legislation floor, including a straight-up Hollywood celebrity who had not an autistic child and was not autistic, but had a friend who had an autistic child, which was John Shaystaff of Pure Autism Now. And he testified, Bradley Whitford testified on the legislation floor here in 2007 to be a voice for autistic people while they locked us out of representation completely so they can get their shit passed through. This is why they made an autism community, because the autism community got consensus. The autism community thinks this. The autism community, the autism community doesn't include autistic people. Yeah, yeah. And so, oh, well, the consensus of the autism community, well, they excluded autistics completely. Hello, the autistic community was not a part of this. So you cannot say oh, yeah. the autism community has everything because they are not us. And they... They're trying to call us a neurodiversity movement, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They were even involved in autism prevalence studies. The shocking autism rate, well, they're involved with the studies with the CDC. See, they told them we need these studies, and now they're using these studies yeah. to do the fear narrative, to do the tragedy narrative, to raise all these millions and millions for research. They came in with the Combating Autism Act. They're, yeah, we are screwed over here. We don't have what you guys have over mm. there. Over here, we have ASEN, and they are incredible, but we need the help, so... We have a lot of other autistic groups out here as well. Everyone's doing their thing. And, of course, with the Autistic Cooperative, we all just come together in a much powerful way because we're stronger together. Right. But what I'm seeing now are the youngers coming in. Because five years ago, I didn't see them. I was like, did they ABA away your opinions and your voice? Because I'm autistic and proud, and I'm going to have to show you that because I don't know who told you to be quiet. You know, where are the youngers? And then now... I can't escape hearing them. They're everywhere. The younger generation <laughs> is loud and they're everywhere. And it's incredible to see. So that's the change. Uh, I was terrified when I spoke with John Greeley back in 2015 or so. Where are the younger voices at? We cannot hear them. There are a few, but where are the rest? And now I'm hearing them. Well, 
um, actually I'm hearing from some of them said, we saw you first and realized there's a different world. And now they're out there writing. Now they're out there blogging. Yeah. And that to me, that's what we're here for. It's not money. It's not recognition. I don't care. Just get out there and make it different for these people. My family and my children and my grandchildren deserve better. But what you guys are doing in the UK, I bring back here and say, see what they're doing over there. Yep. This is real work. This is legitimate work. And it's not work by a parent-led autism organization or a parent-founded autism science organization. Yep. And they don't have billions of dollars tied into it. There's so, so, so much money here. We are not really going up against the organization. We are going up against first world giant businessmen, well, what, mobile, like hey, Trump what, and White. What happens when the, the big corporate, as you're describing, discovers there is no cures? And they just. It's well, they, just, they don't need it to be a cure because they can fund it. There's so much money. They don't want a cure. Yeah. They, you know, at the end of the day, if they do find the cure, it's always more money, right? Oh, well, you're almost recovered. Oh, well, you just need more of this. But if they find that genetic cure, well, guess what? They're already almost there. They've got a biomarker already recognized here in the States for right. severe autism. And they talk about pre-pregnancy and they talk about post-pregnancy planning. And they glossed right over the fact that, oh, look at that. You can now tell whether or not that child is autistic of a certain whatever variety, the autism risk. They're still yeah. saying autism risk. So, you know, like our narrow kin in the Down syndrome community, that bird is in the cage and it is not singing, you know? It's like, and I see that the blindfolds are up. People don't realize what they're doing with their children's DNA. They don't realize the harm because they want to believe in the good stuff. Mm. And they don't understand because they've never had to live one. A lot of them don't understand what it's like to be autistic and live autistic. And they don't understand how people treat yeah. us and disabled people in the past. They think that that's beyond us now, but it's not. Can I and we know that. interrupt you in this flow and ask you, you talked about being spat on by people for looking disabled. What kind of treatment have you had firsthand for, for standing up for yourself as an autistic person? Well, it de depends. Um, when I stand up for myself being autistic, well, first, yeah. online, they told me it was, I was not autistic because of A, B, C, D, and E. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Okay, so <laughs> now you can't tell me what autism is. You can also tell me I'm not autistic. Yeah. <laughs> two for two. Well, okay. Well, I'm autistic, so I don't care if you know that you're right or not right. I know you're wrong, and I'm happy and content with that and moving on. You know, but then I realized... It was everybody. So it was difficult because I'm perceived two different ways. Online, you see me writing, you see me when I'm well and typing, or it's a very different experience. A lot of people, even when I was not able to get out of bed and speak, I could still type, didn't even yeah. realize I was not well out yeah. here. Now, when people meet me in person, and especially if there's noise in groups, I get a lot more uh, noticeably different, yeah. and mm, mm, I will go mute. Really? And so oh. that makes it very difficult. And yeah. since it's overwhelming to see people's eyes, they think I do not exist. They think I am not there. 
they right. think uh, I cannot enter or sign for my own stuff. So it's a very different experience when they meet me in person sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which also is kind of funny because I know some of these autism moms who saw me for lots of time online had very definite thoughts of how I was as a person. And then they walk by me and see me in person and the look on their face is how I know. Yeah, yeah there's more in here mm-hmm, than <laughs> you thought. It's just not here for you to see. You are the one that is disabled and understanding me. I am not disabled and understanding you. The projection, all the assumptions. Have you noticed that? As you, people are supposed to be communicating online, but they're not. They're really just talking to themselves. They don't really see other people. They see it's shallow. It's, it's not like having another person in the flesh right in front of you. So right. I found this medium to be very limited and just people, uh, just their own emotional projections, no matter what they're listening and what they're seeing. It's very biased, isn't it? Yeah, but whether other side of this argument, whether you're too disabled to have a voice or sign your paperwork or not disabled enough, there's no winning. I've, I'm on both sides continuously. It's it's just how I'm perceived and how people perceive language. Yeah. So, like, I'm always asked, where are you from? They think I'm up there from the north from where you guys are. Where is your accent from? And like I was born in Fresno and raised in Fresno. This accent is a speech impediment. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it, I just said I can't help it. I make it sound good, but it, you know. And so then the, they finally start ticking. Oh, I'm not from somewhere else. This is disability. I did not sound like this before disability. I sounded like every other Californian just playing, you know, um, TV voice. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We know there's voices. We know there's accents. As British people grow up with America very intimately through television and, and film, so the key thinking of the culture. And then I had my first girlfriend when I was thirty. Was older than me. She was autistic, and she was American, very educated American. So it was okay. like close to a whole different world in London. And oh, you discovered the whole thing. She talked all about her life, of course, at great length, and went to a good uni. She went back to America and became a lawyer. So, oh, you know. I know, because they were talking about the first autistic lawyer. like, no, 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 no. All you need to stop saying first autistic lawyer. Maybe we got an autistic lawyer, but they're just open about being autistic. Because if you think lawyers weren't autistic in the beginning, who do you think dealt with that minutia? <laughs> you know, in laws and legal stuff. What do you think? No, this is not the first autistic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. stop. Just, it's like, oh, look, we discovered Mars. No, Mars always existed. You just found it. But it was there before you. <laughs> it's like, yeah, are we supposed to cheer them on when they discover something? <laughs> oh, look, the first autistic astronaut. Oh, look, they found one of us and they're cheering. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> so mainly your work is, is face-to-face. It's not really hand-to-hand. And you're in... Well, I'm learning how to get out more. We've had a um, few protests here. Actually, we're in a protest here every Sunday. Okay, yeah. In my local community, in my neighborhood, because we have... um, It's a little bit... It's about zoning laws. I live in the Tower District, which is known as the friendliest queer welcoming community in this area i live in california but it's not like the california other people understand this california is red state this is trump landia i come from the central valley this is nothing like san francisco 
And this is nothing like L.A. This is very, very, very conservative and very, very right-leaning a lot. You know, um, so when you see the state lit up all blue, this valley is usually red when in terms of the blue and red voting for Democrats and all that. Um, and so it's very... Um, but so this area, this neighborhood is incredibly important because it is a safe space. It's the welcoming space. This is where we have our gay balls, our gay clubs. This is where we have our differences. This is also a place where the homeless do find themselves, um, unfortunately, without help, without support um, in this town. We, are, I think, usually are the second or the third largest homeless population in the nation in this town. And there, there's nothing, nothing. It's awful. I know, I've heard that there are six or seven autistics out there right now, homeless in this, in this community that are known right now today. So, um, mm. but, uh, so we've been protesting because a church came in and bought our theater, which is the crown of the parade, which is where we have our, our queer festivals, our gay film parades, you know, just everything. And they want to change the zoning for it because if they are able to, they'll be allowed to say no one can have liquor licenses, which will shut down all the bars here. And that's not how it's zoned, but they bought it and they're using it that way anyway. And so the neighborhood and the community businesses are protesting because we follow the rules and you're going to destroy our property values. You're going to take out our neighborhood because you're not following the zoning. Yeah. Well, this brought out the Proud Boys. This brought out Red Hats. This brought out every week we have so much hate in our streets because this church brought it. It's awful. They do not like the transgender. They do not like the queer. They do not like the non-binary. They have signs. Um, are you triggered? They do not like the mentally ill. In fact, they had a homeless person which started another campaign who attended the service and they were escorted out and removed from the premises Ooh, and were not allowed to attend the service because they were homeless. God. It's a fucking church. It doesn't work like that. In so this. now we have homeless advocates and groups out here who are protesting on a very different issue than the zoning issue because how yeah. can you be a church and kick out homeless people, you know? And it's very awful what they brought. We used to take our kids for walks on Sundays around here and go have coffee. And there's not any chance that it's safe for my family out here now in those days. And they're telling us they're bringing goodness to our neighborhood when it's just awful. It's been like 35 weeks now. It's it's the longest protest here in existence in this city. And um, the city's doing nothing about, about it. They're not. Yep. finding them. They're not doing anything. And when we do have uh, the police presence out here every week, but they're here to protect the church members mm-hmm. and the Proud Boys and all those folks oh. that are out there who um, they come in and they, they, they came in with their body cams and their body armor and their bear mace. I mean, this is what we're dealing with here. Yeah. So that's where I come from. And so being autistic in this culture here is very, very difficult with our demographics. And so I'm out there this last Saturday for the first time with a sign about the six to seven thousand percent more uh, autistic representation in the homeless population than typical. I'm using information from the NAS home and that combination. Yeah, it was a group effort that homelessness kit. I'm trying to get out here to help here 
um, because the services here are nowhere in any way, shape, or form good to us. Yeah. But so I am getting more practice in the um, person-to-person stuff, and I'm connecting with some folks here who are really badass and really great out there and learning from them how to be better about that. Um, I work with Jennifer Marie Davis here in Fresno and some others and the local activists, and she just started a Central Valley Autistics and Allies group. So we want to start trying to bring more local here to our community because we're so loud out there in the world, but none of that's really crossed over into this community. So getting a lot more in person and having to learn how, and you know it's hard being the way we are as it is and then having to manage difficulties. Right, yeah, yeah. We did a 12-person protest against the so-called screening, or it was um, premiere of the second Vaxxed film, which is a fan Yeah, it's a fan film made on the basis of the first one, full of confirmational bias. People saw the first one, started to believe it. So then they ran around this van. They managed to get actually quite a small number of people in it, uh, all of whom completely swallowed Vaxxed One, uh, Sanity Nil, and then proceeded to re-engineer their understanding of what happened to the children and so on. You've got to read Brian Deer's book over over that and how it all started with Wakefield and also how <laughs> the so-called vaccine-damaged children's parents tend to reinterpret reality. You know, well, and, and then how they medicate uh, their children to reduce the vaccine harm is... You see, the very half the capacity of the one he used in 2016 to show his first film. And he said in it, Wakefield, and he only ever talks in two tones. He talks like that, or to be serious, he talks like that. He can only, he can only talk in two tones. That's it. I'm Andrew Wakefield. That's that's how he talks. And he and he's sitting, he's standing in front of them after they've seen, shown this film on a projector they got hold of, and it's deadly silence, because there he is, the struck off doctor, and he says, the reason that uh, upper that none of the people we have commented on in this film, like the CDC and all governments and the pharmaceutical industry, the reason they have not said anything about this film is because they know that every word in it is true. You know, <laughs> 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 thing, no, that's not why they haven't got involved or said anything. They haven't said anything because you're talking a load of rubbish and they don't want to get involved with nutters, you know. But they so reinterpret reality. And what, what you've got, what you're facing is parents mainly who have disabled kids who are in and, this. And what they're doing to recover those kids is brutal. You know, I yeah. know, you know, right. Emma Delmaine and all them out there, what they're just. Yeah, it's beyond me they, yeah. that people don't understand how these autistic kids are being harmed by things because they believe this to be true. And then if that's true, this is what you do. But, oh, my gosh, it's. I cannot wrap my head around it, but lately it seems like everybody wants to believe a myth anyhow on everything. But how can you do that to your child, you know? And that's what tells me true believer status. And I have to put that fault back on these guys because they know what they're doing. And they know that they're taking these vulnerable parents who are guided by love, who are guided by, I'm going to be a warrior for my child. And they're, they're groomed. They're groomed and they're groomed and they're groomed and then they're true believers. And once they get yeah. to true believer status, yeah. you can't help them. And it's devastating. 
because I want to be angry with them, but I can't because when they are done being gaslit and they wake up and realize what happened and what they've done, they have to carry that themselves. Yeah. You know, and it's, if, is their child going to, how is their child going to survive being treated with bleach and chelated and everything else that they were sold? <laughs> treated with bleach. You got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is that you, I, I've touched on this before, and I think it's a very big theme that the idea that parents who have disabled children and qualify for an autism diagnosis, they want to feel they're doing the best it's possible for the kids. And they buy into this frame of reference about curing and helping. And then they see people saying, we're, we're autistic and we're happy about that, but your experience is different and you can do what you like with the kids. And then they, they decide, right, these people are an enemy and they're standing against us. And, and they're standing against Autism Speaks, spending huge amounts of money on finding cures that probably don't exist. But for some parents, it's getting through each day and getting to the next day. This thing about giving parents hope that this whole horrible experience of having these kids who I think a lot of them are self-destructive and destroy their own homes. And also parents who are just human, who can't handle what's been put on top of them. Exactly. And I think people, you know, people need to understand it. Because as a parent, I know there are some things I am not capable of. And I know I need more help with. But those conversations on, you know, I understand there's a whole lot of differences between every person and every child. So why aren't we supporting every person and every child where yeah. they're at? Yeah. We keep getting categorized into these false categories, and it's hurting all of us. Yeah. You're considered high-functioning. You can't have help with all this. So you get incarceration, homelessness, abuse as care, or you're put on the sideline, you know, and somebody yeah. else is trying to make all the choices for you. We have no choice and have had no choice. It's interesting. Whatever activism you've been doing and how you got involved, you have had no choice but to innovate uh, a culture which mm-hmm. you become a kind of autistic elder of and and also a, a bit of I'll a be 50 next day. year it. I didn't realize I was always so different but I'm just a regular autistic I see all the girls like ooh we are a people we just didn't yeah. know <laughs> right, yeah. right, me as well yeah the old Doctor Who fan because <laughs> I come from the city of Liverpool you're loud talk a great deal, all these ideas, constantly blah, 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 and this energy. Nobody could tell you're autistic or ADHD because we're all like that. <laughs> and you come to the south of England, they all think I'm mad because they're all big southern softies. Ooh, you know. I, I'll fit right in then. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because every new culture I go into, not as immersive as a different country, but like say when they work and stuff, I was always so quiet, I know, the first year because I was watching for the new patterns of that culture before I integrated really well. And then I could integrate really well in certain areas, you know, because I had watched like how that happened. I wonder, is that the same for uh, autistic to transplant to another country? Do they adjust after a year or two just because you have to learn it all anyway? Well, no, but I think what autistics do, what I did when I traveled down the country is just carried on like I did before and they all had to adjust to me, (laughs) which caused lots of trouble. In there's no choice, huh? Hey, there's no choice in that. I have to be me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's very much what what you said. You you ended up spending a period of time. You were completely hardcore self integrity. And other people say there's something wrong with you. You need to be cured. All it is is social skills. Because I think, apart from eliminating anxiety, 
and developing social skills or just plain late developers develop it together in the end. I there find people in their 30s. In my experience with my children, myself and others, yeah. it's really in our 30s we really start going, oh, and seeking out certain things they expected us to do at younger ages, you know. And it's not to say that we're delayed. I think we're just busy with other stuff. Yeah. Um, but I know I was in my 30s before I kind of felt like, uh, I might have this, you know. Yeah. And um, I know my my son, who he's 28 now, is starting to feel that change, you know, and the way he's talking and things that he's doing, I think um, he's coming up on that too. It's just, it's interesting. I think we have different developmental timelines. Why yeah. sometimes we sound like we know everything at five years old, but we also, you know, I was a thousand years old when I was young. I was a very old young person. Yeah. And I didn't speak a lot. And I was very, very, very serious. So outwardly. Yeah. Um, now that I'm older and I cannot mask, <laughs> everything just comes yeah. out. But yeah. after that adjustment, I find that I'm much happier and I laugh more. Yeah. And I'm all myself, so I just react, you know, where before everything was processed far away from other people's faces, you know. Developmental timelines, very interesting concept, that, the idea that we go fast and slow at our own paces. Yeah, well, so you know, and that's what they say, oh, well, they're late to potty train. Well, I've never met an autistic kid potty trained before seven or eight, have you? Well, that must I be a developmental timeline. <laughs> I've still got autistic kids who need to fall overnight, but they're grown-ups and they handle that, Certainly you know? There are some bloodlines. There's bloodlines in my family of what you call the super high functioners in relative terms. You're probably the same yourself. Potty trained very early on and everything and didn't have any signs of all this. And I couldn't get help when I was a young person because I didn't, I was very good at handling, uh, if you had depression, you get over it. If you had, uh, I was very good at surviving. That's what I'm trying to say. So they never got me because there wasn't actually anything you could diagnose me as suffering from because I was just too good at surviving. But I was obviously. I suffer, suffer other, other people who don't understand me. In an awful time. Yeah. Yeah. But that's life, you know. But, I, you know, it was different for me because as a child, I lived in a very remote location. Yeah. It was an hour's drive to find any town up yeah. in Washington State when I was young. And yeah. so I didn't understand the differences of people because I was very isolated. And I grew up in deaf culture, deaf community, and I grew up very hard of hearing. So a lot of yeah. my speech therapy and things like that I got for being hard of hearing yeah. and ear infections. So a lot of that crosses over, I think. And so they, I did not talk a lot, which they said was to my hearing. I went through speech therapy for years um, yeah. to talk. So a lot of the stuff that we do with autistic kids now, it was already having happening back then because of my hearing issues. Yes. Um, which now I understand are tied to EDS, Ehlers Danlos Syndrome. Oh, oh, okay. So there some of these odd, weird, funky things that were just family history. I have a name now. Oh. Okay, yeah. you know. No, it's interesting. What, what you've been telling me is that before we were autistic, we were something else. For example, you couldn't hear properly, so there was a problem with understanding in that way. Before you were autistic, you have ilos, ila, danhos, uh, which meant that you had these issues with your body. And with myself, I didn't have any of those smoke screens to fall back on. So yeah. I was kind of walking around for a long phase of my life. So you had like a spotlight on everything, huh? Yeah, I was called names. There was a, that's right, yeah. the whole world put I a spotlight was, on. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, because and all I was trying to do was was live my life. And this thing about fitting in, I never liked that in the first place. I always rejected that from from an early age. So and a, a program we used to watch in the 60s and 70s was the Beverly Hillbillies, which was oh, yes. a lesson in keeping your integrity in an alien culture <laughs> and what could go wrong and how much fun you could have being yourself. And we had this whole British eccentric thing as well. And a man called Spike Milligan was on the television. And then there was a man called uh, James Burke, who was not autistic, but he's brilliant at explaining things and making sense of them. You know, science is a beautiful thing. We had a guy called Dr. Magnus Pike turned up who waved his arms a lot and talked about science and was obviously on the spectrum. So we always had autistic people. We didn't know they were autistic. And I had family and I had myself and, and I had best mate in school and then another friend and so on. All these people through my life didn't know they were autistic. When I was 30, I didn't know I was autistic. And, my girlfriend, 35, <laughs> didn't know she was autistic. And he went on like this, you know, and father didn't know he was autistic. So it's interesting. You, you talk about the sudden Who's later different? on, it all hybridizes. It all comes together. The death community. <laughs> yeah. And you realize that actually all along you were hiding in plain sight. Oh, that was a big science fiction community. You see. Oh, well, who invented sci-fi? I mean, we had to think of something, right? That's right. Science fiction was invented by, um, and it's in Eurotribes. Um, there was these magazines for men. There's always men who were into ham radio. Was, you know, anywhere, yes. crystal radios. And it was a fellow called Hugo Gernsback invented the term scientific fiction for stories put in the magazines that were put out for these guys who were into radios. He said, it's so, totally invented by the autistic. Well, I'm married to a non-autistic now. Yeah. That is quite a lesson in culture. Mm. I never realized how autistic I kept my culture until I met his family. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, one of these things is definitely not at all like the others. <laughs> what am I doing? And, um, and he's often my translator now, you know? Yeah. Uh, my and I go a lot of places friend. I never would because he takes me there and then he makes me feel comfortable being there with him. Yeah. And otherwise I would never have gone on my own and uh, been successful at it. <laughs> but My best female friend is, was like that of over, what is it, 32 years now. She's quite, I think she's kind of taught me to relate and, and empathize and have a certain kind of sensitivity and, and just given me a space that a lot of people couldn't give me. That, uh, you know, I, amazing experience. I am learning a lot more because the thing is, when you love a person and you respect a person, whatever their neurotype is, you want to do what you can to meet them where they're at and them to you. And if you're both doing that, you find a way. Yeah. But if someone's being rigid and saying you must do it this way, and some things I must be rigid on because that's what the brain is saying. You, that I cannot move, but this I can move, and this I can move. You can find lots of ways to accommodate one another. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. and Bill here, he, he helps accommodate everything. So, yeah. uh, it's amazing to me because, one, oh. he's not autistic, and I'm still oh. kind of, been almost five years remade, and I'm still wrapping my head. How did that happen? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you get these people, amazing friends I've got who aren't autistic, but they're just beautiful because they're yeah. so genuine and loving i think you know well, and you know what's interesting in learning him and learning me we're learning different communication styles and we in the beginning it felt like i felt like maybe we were having conflict but what i realized is when we finally figured out how to get in the middle 
we're talking about the same exact thing, two very different ways. And it just dawned on me, this is the difference in our thinking. I, I just could not believe how he got there and how I got there. And enough of these finally made me realize, oh, no wonder I don't understand stuff so much. And so he explains things and oh. I'm getting a bit better. Like the feelings, I'm like, why are there feels paramount? They say f- facts don't, facts matter, feelings don't, but they're also emotional that yeah. the facts don't matter if they're upset about it. And then I'm oh. in trouble because I told them the fact that they do not like. <laughs> and now I'm upset because they cannot accept the truth. Mm. And the truth is more important. But no, if you have a neurotypical loved one and you want to be kind and caring towards them you try and it's hard because the truth is what matters but no right now my relationship is what matters and and trying to learn how to do that but i would never have learned these different patterns and how to understand them without him and i have one one non-autistic child and this is how I understand a little bit now non-autistic parents feeling complicated with autistic children's because, my gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> I would try to do things and I'd be like, oh, we are here and we're in public together and she's doing her thing and she's excited and she's happy. Yeah. She's talking to everybody and doing stuff and I want her to sit. So I do what her brothers love. I get into mama's wallet with all the special cards, all the little <laughs> cards I saved all the business cards, all the plastic cards, just for this reason. And I pulled them out and I said, look. And she looks at them and I drop them on the floor. And she looks at them and then she kicks them. And they go down like four or five feet all over the place. I'm like, what happened, daughter? And then she runs off and plays. And I don't know what to do because her brothers would have went, oh, my God, the best toy ever. And they'd have been on that floor organizing those little pieces of paper for an hour. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to pick up the paper. Wait, hold on. This one. But your brothers love this. This always works. (laughs) But no. So I had to learn that when she is upset, even if she got in trouble, she will cry. And I have to hug her. Mm -hmm. And she tells me, you have to hug me longer, Mama. Okay. And and we figure it out, you know. But um, she grows up and everyone around her is autistic. So she gets it. But... The parenting is so different on what works and what doesn't work. So I couldn't understand what to do. And then I had a friend, my neurotypical friend, came in and held out a bag of candy to her and said, you want some candy? And she jumped up and she ran out and she took that candy. And I never once saw her brothers ever care about anything like that. And I thought that was like a a children's movie myth. Like you show them candy and they'll run. (laughs) Brilliant. uh, It was just different than children. Basic reward. Yeah. So all my true diehard parenting things totally are brand new with her. She's 12 now, and oh, we have so much fun. She is oh, the best. Brilliant. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's awesome. Eve, when we, if we do an Autism One uh, protest, would you be able to make that? Uh, over there, they're having it in um, September this month. Really? I think they're having it this weekend, yes. Really? I was thinking of next year, but... We need to have a sort of a 2022 American convention of people. That's what I would like to do because this Autism One, TACA, we have all of these autism organizations here that are parent-founded and they're really fronts for the anti-vaxxers. They're really fronts for the Andrew Wakefield and RFK Jr. Uh, And they bring these parents coming in, they bring them in and they bring them into their autism community 
and they bring them into their servers, they bring them in their communities, and they start teaching them all those things. And Taka still refers to MAPS doctors, which is the reincarnation of defeat autism now doctors that we know. Um, this is the new generation of them. So nothing's changed. Oh, wow. They just got sneakier about it. They put better language in front of it. But um, it's vicious. It's vicious here and it's uncontrolled, um, except for the successes that have come through on behalf of Emma Delmain and Melissa Eaton and Amanda Siegler. This last two years, there's been some traction finally Good. in the United States to get some of this to stop. But we still have these massive autism conferences that yeah. are all about this alternative medicine that looks like abuse for children. I've seen how. And, so, and then they sell. The money here is ridiculous, but you'll have RFK Jr. as a keynote. you got J.B. Oh, Handley oh, autographing books. I mean, nothing's changed. It's all under children's that? health defense now. Eve, <laughs> children's self-defense. Now, point out that you go to Autism One, you get like a dozen different cures for autism. But how can you have a dozen different cures for one thing? You could make maybe two or three treatments or something, but you can't have that many for the same thing. It's it's that simple, the principle. And they they don't seem to notice this. The children's health defense seems to be mass manufacturing its own evidence. It's, well, it's, yes, it's, it, it is. It's Andrew Wakefield and RFK Jr. This is yeah. next generation of Generation Rescue. Yeah. That's who they are. Just making Katie, Wright, Katie Wright sits on their board. Sorry? Katie Wright sits on the Children's Health Board. It's the same people. They're just under a new name. It's the same people we've been fighting all this time. They just took COVID to the moon. Yeah, and Katie Wright is a very good friend of Jonathan Mitchell. The, uh, I don't know. Sessional troll who hates anyone. Who oh, yes, okay. Opinion on autism. He hates the neurodiversity movement. And he's interesting because the amount of attention he's had from the anti vaxxers on that weird autism channel on YouTube that uh, is basically the center for autism, autism related diseases that interviewed Andrew Wayfield and Del Bigtree and then seems to have eliminated. Autism is not a disease. Oof. They were, isn't that something? They still try to say it, don't they? Well, it's something that appeals to a particular demographic. They're trying to sell to a particular... So they, if they can cure it, it has to be a disease, right? When it's not right. that at all. That's, yeah. And also the hatred, the parents who who are traumatized by having these kids, and they're in a certain emotional state, so you get a club of people who, who want a revenge and hatred club, basically. I've seen a lot of them. Yeah. They're vicious. When the anti-vaxxers are the most vicious of the parents, yeah, um, advocates and the parent activists, and they all the anti-vaxxer. There's there's that front. There's a QB front, and you have autistic, you know. But that side, the talk talk about curing autism now, autism one. They are the most most vicious, dangerous <laughs> people to deal with. Yeah. Um, because over on the QB side, they're dangerous too, but it's just a whole different mentality. You're dealing with professionals at some manner still, but over here with these anti-vaxxers, it's wicked. And yeah. you have true believer status, and they're the ones that do the stalking of the, uh, like, Fauci and Peter Hotez and all of them. They're the, and off it, they're being stalked by these people. These are the same people we've been fighting for years, so we know yeah. how vicious they are. We know how real their death threats are, but... Uh, with COVID, they, they just latched on. 
Um, and so it got even bigger. And now it's just, I can't believe what's happened. It's just mind boggling. They're all you drunk. Know? Everyone's yeah, drinking the bleach now. What are we going to do, Paul? They're all drinking the bleach. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all trying to avoid, they're all trying to kill themselves. It's mass suicide. They're all going to end up dead, these people. It's just a matter of time. They've and you know, they're going to die denying it because these people lied to them. And they're making billions while they're doing it. They have no idea. There is a conspiracy, a real one, but they're not looking at the right one. They are it. Yeah, yeah, yeah they are. You're absolutely because right. Because they're going to suffer and they're going to pay for it. But the people who told them to believe this don't suffer yeah. at all. I noticed years ago that the people with the characteristics of a cult and conspiracy is them. And how they carry mm -hmm. on, oh, the actual conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The real, what they're reacting against is just politicians, it's just corporations. If You can't hide something as big as mass brain damaging all over the world for decades on end. You can't do it. It's going on, we'd all know, especially if it's right there in your face. Eve! I've taken up your time for so long. Thank you so much for talking to me. Lovely. May I say how brave you are and how you're making Oh, you too. I have so much, so much gratitude for your work and so much respect for your work. And I love being in the archives and going, whoa, there's Paul Wadey. Thank you. I told you we didn't go nowhere. Autism speaks. I told you. <laughs> well, I went there in 2009, talked to Mark Sinkum and Peter Bell. I tried to talk to them. I was actually there on Fifth Avenue. I had a nice chat with them for 45 minutes. They're very nice people, you know. But according to Harry Nearman, they say one thing to me and something completely different to parents. It's very politician-like. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that next time, okay? Ooh, yes, next cool. time. Lovely to talk to you. Bye. Mm, bye. bye.